Well, it's my responsibility this morning to speak truth to us. Of course, I want to be faithful to do that, so I'll ask you to open your Bibles with me, since that is where we find absolute truth. We, we study the Word of God. We open the Word of God each and every day. I would be my hope anyway. And we study it because we are commanded to know Him. And because we know through faith in Jesus Christ, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we know that His Word is truth. In fact, Jesus Christ Himself, God incarnate, when He was on the earth prayed for all of those who would believe. John 17, 17, he prayed, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So not only is God's word the truth, because he is the truth, but his word is the very agency through which he himself sets us apart unto holiness in practice. That's what sanctify means in John seventeen seventeen. Set them apart. Make them holy. Not holy only before God through the holiness that we find in Jesus Christ by faith in him as we are enveloped in Jesus Christ but also in practice as we live. And so you and I as Christians study the Word of God so that God is glorified by our trust in His Word so that you and I, as we live, we reflect that trust through our obedience to His Word and He in that sanctifies us. He sets us apart unto greater and greater holiness. We are living in a day and age in which honesty, the words that people use, actually meaning what they ought to mean. That's what we mean when we say honesty, the words and the actions of people being what they actually mean. That, that's in short supply, really. It's almost non-existent in many circles. We would even say truth is very difficult to find in our country and in our world today. Why? Because lies abound everywhere. They are all over the place. The truth is no longer spoken. The truth is no no longer thought of as an absolute in our world. The moving target at best. In the minds of many and in our world, what is spoken of as truth is, in fact, that moving target only to be declared by those who have the loudest voice. If you have the loudest voice and you can shout down everybody else, then what you say is declared as truth. And if you no longer agree or challenge the loudest voices that are speaking, then you are immediately labeled a denier of the truth. You are immediately marginalized. You're even persecuted for making such a challenge. That's the collective atmosphere in which we are currently living. And yet you and I, as Christians, when we open our Bibles, it's like a drink of fresh water. It's like the freshest water that could ever be found being swallowed by the driest mouth that was ever in the person, as we hear actual truth, the real truth from the only actual voice that matters, when we hear from God, we are refreshed, we are satisfied. So that is what we are here to do, to hear from God. So turn in your Bibles to Or I should say, turn in your book of absolute truth to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15 and the words of God that we find there. It's interesting, isn't it? By God's providence over the past several months, we have been hearing the truth about behavior. Behavior. 
seems rather ironic. That what we see and what we hear about on a daily basis from the flood of social media and the flood of television screens, from the loud voices in our world, our complaints and praises about someone's behavior. We hear both complaints and praises about the behavior of those who are in positions of elected power. Doesn't matter if it's national politicians, local politicians, state politicians, there are complaints and praises about it all. We are bombarded day in and day out, at least as of late, concerning the behavior of those who are in positions of delegated power, like the men and women who protect us every day called the police. We have seen the behavior of those who are making every attempt to take their own position of power. And their voices are seemingly trying to be the loudest protesters and rioters. And we have heard of the behavior of those who have been silenced because of the wrongly exercised power of others. That's the behavior of our world. That is the behavior that we see before us 24-7 every day and on nearly every minute of every day. And it is becoming ever more difficult to silence the noise. In order for us to gain some perspective on how we are to live, we just want to silence the noise. And so you and I as Christians, what do we do? We open our book of absolute truth so that we can hear and know that we are hearing what is actually right. And we've been here in this final section of Romans by God's providence. And our study of this book, for me in many ways, sadly is coming to a close. It's coming to an end. And the Apostle Paul ends on the very subject that the divine hand of a sovereign God who is directing all things by the will of His wisdom, he ends on the very thing that God wants him to end on, and that is on the subject of proper Christian behavior. Jesus said to His disciples that the world would know that they were Christians by their love for one another. We Christians understand that He was not simply speaking to them only or about them only, but He was speaking to each and every one of us who professes to know Jesus Christ by faith. The world, those who are not Christians, the world will know that we are disciples of Jesus Christ by our love for one another. Beloved, there is no higher calling for us as Christians. There is no higher place, no higher thinking, no higher activity for us as Christians. There is no greater example to the world about the saving power of Jesus Christ to resurrect a dead soul from eternal destruction and to make it alive than when that person sees someone who is in this confused and lost world living opposite of how they live. Let's have our thinking in the right place this morning as we begin to look at Romans chapter 15. Because the world will know that we are Christians, that we are true followers of Jesus Christ. The world will know that both in actuality and experientially, not by misguided and eternally unhelpful attempts at social justice. The world will not know that they need a Savior by some kind of unhelpful, unchristian social change. 
They will not know that we are followers of Jesus Christ by how many charitable organizations we give to. They will not know that we are disciples of Jesus Christ by the kind of tweets we post or by all of the Facebook friends, articles, and comments that we give an enthusiastic thumbs up to. No. The world will know that we are Christians by how we live. Specifically, by how we live our lives in showing a biblical love for one another. Why? Because the love that Jesus is speaking about in John chapter 13 is the love that He is. It's the love that He is. It is the love that He exemplified as He lived on this earth as a man. And that is a love that is dramatically and diametrically opposed and dramatically opposite from the love the loud voices of the world proclaim and practice. It's diametrically opposed and dramatically opposite. The world will know that we are disciples of Jesus Christ when we love one another. That is the core essence of what our behavior is to be like. We are to behave out of a heart of love. And if our love for one another defines our being a disciple of Christ, then we have to ask the question, what does that love look like? What does that love look like? Because the world and the loud voices of the world sure have defined it their own way. And they are saying that if you don't do it our way, then you don't love. Well, what does that love look like? Well, this love is clearly defined in our book of absolute truth, which is God's Word. It is defined by Jesus Christ throughout the Scriptures, and nowhere is it more clear and more pointed than in Luke chapter 14. So as we begin our time, just by way of introduction, I want, I want us to go to Luke chapter 14 just for a moment. Luke chapter 14. Because Jesus has been on the earth for quite some time, and he has been in the ministry in Luke chapter 14 for some time. And there are many who are enamored with this prophet who is wandering the earth, as they might call him, this one who can do miracles, this one who has healed people, and they claim to be disciples, those who are followers of his. It begins in verse 25, saying, now great multitudes were going along with him. This is what happens. Very enamoring, very inviting. Hey, I want to be part of the crowd. Let me get in the group. And he turns to this multitude, this great multitude, and says, if anyone comes to me, this is the idea. If you're going to follow me, if you're going to profess to know me, if you're going to profess to be a disciple of mine, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, Wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, and even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Now the world loves to hear that hate, that hate idea. Oh great, this this man is preaching about hating one another. That's exactly what we'd like to have, that they hate. But that's not what the word means. The word is miseo. It's it's a comparison word, really. The idea isn't the word hate like we say. It's it's a a level of, of love, really. Unless you love them, your relationships in this earth less, unless their priority of love for you is less, unless the number one priority isn't Jesus Christ you cannot be my disciple 
You see, you have to have this understanding about what real love looks like. Not only can you not enter without realizing your depravity in that way, but you, if you're proclaiming it, you have to wonder about your discipleship. This is devotion. This is submission. Whoever has a devotion to me that seems as if the things of this world are more important than me, you can't be my disciple. You may be following me. You may be saying I'm that, but you aren't necessarily mine. And then verse 27, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. The cross was a symbol of death. Who does not ever take up his life and and say, listen, I'm willing to give it all daily. Can't be my disciple. is isn't a one-time thing. It's an everyday thing. Devotion to Christ, the duration with Christ by way of realizing that this continual dying is every day. Jesus goes on to say, for that for which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, doesn't first find, sit down, calculate the cost, and see if he's had enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation, he's not able to finish, and all who observe it, Start to ridicule him. You say you follow Jesus, you better count it. You better realize what it takes. It's going to cost you everything. Don't don't just ease in and say, yeah, I'll be part of the bandwagon. And then later on, you fall aside and everybody goes, see, what happened? Don't be like that. Don't be like the king who goes to battle without first figuring out whether he can beat the enemy who's standing out there. So then, verse 33 No one of you can be my disciple who does not give up just a few of the things of his life, a few of the resources of his life. No, 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 all, all, all things. Your own resources, everything you rely on. Whatever it is about you, your dreams, aspirations, everything, you have to relinquish all of that. Open it with a loose hand because Christ may say, listen, you need to give that up. You see, what does that look like in life? What does that discipleship look like in life? Well, we can simply sum it up this way. It is a dying to self love. It is a love that dies to self. In other words, loving like Christ, loving one another, they will know you are my disciples. Well, being that disciple of Jesus Christ, loving one another, and by that the world knowing that we are disciples of Jesus Christ, happens when we are practicing when we are putting into action, personally applying in our own life this dying to self truth. That's the essence of Christ-like love. The world knows none of that in their behavior. The world recognizes in themselves none of that, even though they might proclaim to love. But we are called to show them by our behavior what real love looks like as we love one another. No higher calling than that. Now, with that said... Here's some of the trouble we have with that. Here's some of the trouble we as Christians have with that. Because upon hearing that principle, immediately two things begin to take place within us. First, as 
We think honestly, as honest Christians, we begin to feel a weight of conviction. Conviction of the Holy Spirit upon us. God is on us in ways in which we may not be applying that principle in our lives. And we begin to start cataloging all of these ways in which we aren't dying to self. And we aren't really loving one another in ways that we ought to. And we and the Spirit uses that. And it's, and it's on us. And we feel the weight of that. And the conviction begins to sting. We know it's right. We know we need to live differently. But then, then the second thing begins to well up in us it comes from our flesh. We begin to rationalize. We begin to speak to ourselves about this truth that we realize and we understand and we find all kinds of reasons why we don't have to die to self. We begin to rationalize all the reasons why we can do certain things in our life that that maybe we ought to be dying to self in. And we begin to say things to ourselves like, if I give up these Christian freedoms of mine, these things that aren't sinful, then, then I won't be able to do anything. Or, or if I give up these freedoms, then I'm no longer free in my Christianity. And if I do that, now I've become actually a legalist. Why? Because even God doesn't require that if I do these things. And if I do it, then I'm just doing it out of obligation rather than out of conscience. In other words, I'm doing it in the same way that someone's trying to earn their salvation before God. And that's wrong, isn't it? Or if I give that up, then that other person, that person who's weak in the faith, then they are actually ruling me. And I'm not going to allow that. After all, I'm the mature Christian here. I'm the one who understands that we have freedoms in Christ. I know what the Bible teaches. So I'll just keep living as I do because I'm the strong one in the faith. Let me ask you a question. Does that sound like you? Does that sound like you this morning? Does that sound like your heart sometimes? Does your heart suddenly use that strategy to convince you that you are loving others when in fact you may not be loving others? You see, dying to self is an ever-increasing, more difficult task than we think it is. Especially when we think like that. So how, how, do, how does that, that battle within us get changed? How does that change in us? How do we begin to actually live as self-denying disciples so that the world might know that Jesus Christ is, in fact, the Savior? This life of love for one another How do we live like that so that others would, in fact, know Christ? Well, the first place to begin is to embrace the fact that very often, if not most often at times, we don't live a self-denying life. Look at chapter 15 of Romans, verse 1. Verse 1. Now, we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not please ourselves. Now, I want us this, for just this moment to really focus our attention on just that so that we don't miss the significance of what is being said and what is being implied here in Paul's words. And please, don't allow yourself to let slip by the fact that Paul, 
The Apostle Paul, remember, this is the Apostle Paul, the godly man who God has allowed to give us 13 of the New Testament scriptures, 13 of the books of absolute truth. This is Paul, the man whom all the world would never even think of comparing themselves to spiritually. Or you and I as Christians, we sometimes get in this idea that Paul's spiritually here and we're here. We'd never think of saying, oh yeah, we're, we're mature like Paul. But here's Paul. Here's the Apostle Paul here in Romans chapter 15 after all he's written already. And he's linking himself with all of those in this category of strong in the faith. Strong, that's what he means there. We who are strong. We know he means those who are strong in the faith because even chapter 14, now accept the one who is weak in the faith. And he goes down and we delineate it as we walk through that, this difference between strong and weak in the faith. So Paul links himself with those in this category. And here he is lumping himself in by means of this collective we. We who are strong. And I find it fascinating as Paul writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that as Paul writes this, he could have just remained neutral. He could have just written it as he's writing to just them, leave himself out of it, but he doesn't do that. No. Instead, he comes out with strong words for the strong And he includes himself in that group with all of us. You say, all of us? Yeah, all of us. Because that's what he really means when he's talking about strong. Because we all see ourselves as being strong in the faith. I've mentioned this before as we were walking through chapter 13 and 14. We all see ourselves as strong in the faith. Someone's going to say to me, I know, wait a minute, no, no. I know that I'm weak in the faith. I know that. No, I'm not strong in the faith. I know I'm weak in the faith. So let me just help you understand your own character here for a moment. The reality is that the moment you begin to judge somebody else by your standard, you are assuming the position of the strong. And we all do that. We are actually declaring that we are strong in the faith because that other person isn't living like me. And so while we may say that we are weak, in that very moment, the moment in which we are evaluating someone else's spiritual life by our own, in that moment we show that we actually believe we're strong. And yet the strong would never behave like that. But Paul says, that's not how the strong are to behave. And so what does the strong truly do when faced with the reality of possibility of having to forego, of having to die to self of a Christian freedom because of the tightly held restriction of another Christian? A restriction brought about by their own weak understanding of what it means to be a Christian and what that's to look like. What is the strong to do? How are we to behave? Well, here the Bible says that the strong ought to bear the weakness of those without strength and not please ourselves. So what's the principle? What's the universal principle that Paul is teaching here? What's the principle that God would have us own? The very principle that Jesus was teaching the disciples in the Gospel of John and in Luke chapter 14 and in so many other places. The principle that we've mentioned, it is die to self. Die to self. That's the principle. Die to self in loving one another. We need to ensure that we understand that the emphasis here is on the word ought. Ought. We who are strong ought. Ought. It's a very strong word in spite of the way that it sounds in the English. 
a very strong word, because when we read, read that word ought in the English language here in our English Bibles, it sounds almost like an option. It sounds like we can take it or leave it. We ought to do that, but you don't have to do that. You should, but, you know, it's an option. Go either way. It's like we're standing at a crossroads almost. That's how we sometimes hear it euphonically in our mind and our understanding, but that is not what Paul is intending to say. The reality is that Paul is making it clear that for those who are strong in the faith, of which we all believe, dying to self, foregoing, Let's just say it this way. The exercise of sacrificial love isn't an option. It's the only option. It isn't one of many. It is the only option. In fact, the original word carries the idea of obligation. Obligation. In other words, we could actually translate it this way. We owe it to the weak. In other words, we who are strong are indebted to the weak to love in this way. It's our obligation. In other words, since the weak in the faith are brothers and sisters in Christ, since they are part of the family, since we all are in the same family in Christ, we who are strong in the faith, and all of us love that category, especially when we're exercising our own freedom. We owe it, we owe it to the weak to not simply just brush off our Christ-like responsibility and rather care for their conscience. See, love for one another just doesn't go about pleasing itself. It just doesn't do that. Love seeks... Notice verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor. Love seeks to please his neighbor. We hear the word neighbor and immediately our minds go to that passage in Luke chapter 10, that familiar passage that we hear in grade school, grammar places, and we even have laws called Good Samaritan Laws. Why? Because Jesus, that's the passage where Jesus delineates this whole reality of using an illustration that we have taken to mean what it means in that passage, and taken it many times out of context. Jesus is using that as an illustration to describe to this Pharisee who his neighbor is. Because the Pharisees were divided. Who, who do I really help? And they would never help a half-Jew, a Samaritan person. And so Jesus uses this illustration because prior to that, the man says, listen, I've loved God with my whole heart, mind, and strength. And I know what the second part of the law says, love your neighbor as myself. So who's my neighbor? Jesus uses this illustration in Luke 10. And so our minds go there here and. Oftentimes when we read here, please his neighbor. And in a general sense, it's everybody God created, all of humanity. We have a love for humanity. It doesn't, rem- it doesn't matter how much melanin someone has in their skin or not. We love humanity. Why? Because they were created by God. But in a specific sense, it is our brothers and sisters in Christ. That is our neighbor. So all of you are my neighbors. And in a general sense, all of humanity is my neighbors. And so as a Christian, I am obligated. I am required by God to love you. I am required not simply to love you and to love others, but to do it rightly. To do it rightly. So therefore, I need to know, how does that love look? What is that love defined by? How is that love defined rightly? Notice notice that the Apostle Paul defines this pleasing of our neighbors with two qualifiers. Verse 2, he says, Let each of us please his neighbors for his good 
to his edification. Prepositional phrases that help modify how this love looks. For their good and to their edification. So let's, let's think about this. We're following the logic of the Apostle Paul as he lays out the very reality of Jesus Christ's life and how we are exemplified the same thing as we are disciples of Christ. Let's ensure that we're clear in our thinking about this because often when we read these words, not please ourselves as Christians and as even mature Christians, we get the idea that what is being implied is a ban, some kind of spiritual ban on all of our Christian freedoms or anything that we do. In other words, if somebody else has difficulty with someone else's behavior, maybe something that I'm living by, then I have an obligation to not please myself, and that means I must not continue to do it. That's what we get in our minds. Just to raise your hand for a second, if you've thought about that as you've read through chapter 13, chapter 14, if I live the way I live, and if the scriptures are saying what I think, at least in my mind they're saying, then I can't do anything if someone else has a problem. You ever thought that? Anybody? You're afraid to raise your hands? You're not on camera, I am. They won't see you. Yeah, we think like that. And so what is God calling for us to do as his children? Well, let me just say this. It is directly opposite of what is practiced in our godless society and in godless religions throughout the world. Sadly, even practiced in many that claim Christianity are in parts of churches. The godless world and the godless religions of our world think of what they do in relation to what it will accomplish for them. In other words, I only do what I do because I'm getting something out of it. It doesn't matter if it's an accolade. It doesn't matter if it's some kind of property. Whatever it is, I do it so it's for me. What I get for me right now. And godless religions are on the same philosophy. They do what they do to ensure something with God. If I do this, then I'm secure with God. If I can do this, then maybe one day when I arrive before God, He will accept me. So it's for them. They're serving them. It's self-oriented. But as Christians, our orientation is directly opposite to that. We live for the sake of others. We live for the good and for the edification. And in reality, edification is just a further definition of what is good of others. We live for his good to his edification. Edification, that's which will build them to Christ likeness. We live for that which will build them to Christ's likeness. So pleasing our neighbor has a goal. For the unsaved neighbor, the only thing that builds them to Christ's likeness is the gospel. It is not social change. It is the gospel and only the gospel. Nothing else will do that. And so we have to live that truth and we have to share that truth with the world around us. They need the gospel that is for their good and to their edification. If you want to live with your neighbors, the world around you, let each of us do that in love, showing that we are disciples of Christ, then get the gospel to them with your life and with your words. Don't link arms with them in foolishness and sinful activities and sinful philosophies. That's not going to do it. Because the moment their philosophy changes and you disagree with it, if it's sinful, you ought to disagree with it anyway. The moment you disagree, they'll discard you as fast as last week's trash. They need the gospel. We cannot join the sinful world in sinful activities. Joining with sinful self-serving philosophies of the world all the while convincing ourselves 
it is good that we're doing for them. It's not good at all. The only good for a godless world is the gospel. That is for their good and to their edification. And likewise, when we think of each other, that to think of each other, your neighbors of one another, your brothers and sisters in Christ, we have to think of the good and edification. That means that when we are living one together and interacting with one another, there are going to be times when we say difficult things to each other. There are going to be times when we interact with each other and we're on opposite sides of an activity and we must and, we, and it's needful to say difficult things to one another, to have that kind of dialogue and to have that kind of interaction. We need to be challenging one another with the truth of Scripture. That's a must. We cannot just turn our heads from that. We cannot put our heads in the sand and think, I'm just not going to deal with it. We cannot do that. We have to have and be able to have with one another passionate discussions about biblical truths and patterns of life. We have to. And there will be times when continued sin will need to be dealt with in our hearts and in the church. All for the good and all for the edification of each and every one of us. There will be times in those discussions when we will need to forego some Christian freedom. And at other times, we will not forego. And so the implication of these first two verses here in chapter 15 are far-reaching. They speak to both ends of the spectrum and everyone in between on the faith maturity scale. That's why Paul says in verse 2, let each of us, it's all inclusive. This isn't just a, a hammering on the strong as some would say. This is let each of us, all the strong and everybody who thinks they're strong, which means everybody in between. This is not simply for those who happen to be in the strong category and those who are in the weak category are somehow exempt from loving like this. No. This is for all of us. For all of us, no matter where we are in the scale of maturity. Each of us has an obligation. Each of us owes it. Each of us is indebted to the others rather than to ourselves. So, If you're weak in the faith, if you're a weak in the faith Christian, work, work in your own heart so that in your walk of faith, you aren't continually introducing your desires to everybody else and they must conform to your desires and expecting them to be like you and therefore you becoming the controlling element in every relationship you have because everybody has to be like you. Work to not be like that. And if you're strong in the faith and you're actually strong in the faith, then work so that you are ensuring that what you do and why you do it is understood by you so that you understand what is good and what is for edification to others. And so that you won't be overwhelmed by trying to succumb to everybody's little whim. Because that's not what God's asking you to do. By dying to self, you too are loving others and conforming to Christ. So the Scriptures are very helpful. They're very helpful for us. Pleasing others doesn't mean that I must always subsume their life, absorb what they say, that I must always live by their weakness. No, it means that I must always be evaluating and thereby activate that which is good for the edification of others. That may mean that I need to give it up. That may mean that I don't give it up. Seems rather clear when we're dealing with unbelievers, isn't it? None of us would ever give up the gospel 
Even though we've heard in evangelicalism as of late, someone in evangelicalism said, don't take the gospel to these people who are protesting and rioting. That would be insensitive. Excuse me? Insensitive? Well, that is to assume that I do something in order to save someone, that I personally in myself can do something to affect a change in someone's heart and life. Well, the absolute truth says that it's the Holy Spirit that does that. I don't do that. And so to say it's insensitive is to assume that I have something to do with it and which actually blasphemes the Holy Spirit to think like that. Because that's attributed to the Holy Spirit, not to me. Do you know what else it does? That proclaims that the gospel is insensitive. When God said in Romans chapter 1 that it's the power of him unto salvation for all who would believe, it's not insensitive at all. In fact, it is the most sensitive thing that I could ever give to someone. By the way, those who are weak, those who are strong, both the actions of being good for the edification. If I'm strong in the faith, then I, it's assumed that working for the good and edification of others assumes that I know what is beneficial for them. Let us not assume that we are strong when we do not know what is good and beneficial. And by no, I do not mean intellectual knowledge. I don't mean information. We mean information that's experientially worked out. Practice knowledge. So here we are, right? Here we are, Romans chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. We're once again reminded of what we've read already in Romans chapter 12. Renew your mind. Have your mind transformed by the sanctifying word of God, ensuring that you are transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, actually knowing the Word of God and therefore the God of the Word so that you can and do lead others to Him. That you're not leading others simply to your own freedoms or your own restrictions by your behavior. Why? Because Paul said it. Christian life is not about eating and drinking not about anything else. It's about righteousness, peace, and joy. Remember that in the last chapter in verse 17? The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. It's not about those things. It's not about your Christian freedoms. If you have to forego them, so what? If that's what's actually good for the growth and edification for someone else, then so be it. It's not about that stuff. It's about righteousness. Peace, joy only comes through the Holy Spirit. That only comes in and through salvation. What's the outcome? What's the outcome of all of this? What happens when we live this way? What happens when we live this way? Notice Paul mentions two outcomes. Two outcomes. One, personal hope. Personal hope. And two, Personal, or I'm sorry, public unity. Personal hope, public unity. Let's look at personal hope really quickly first. Verses 3 and 4. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it's written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell upon me. He's talking about God, like Christ. Psalm 69 is a psalm, uh, prophetic psalm, Christ's words. The reproaches of those who reproached God fell upon Christ. In other words, he didn't serve himself. He died to self in order to honor and glorify God. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and encouragement of what? Of the way people love you, of the way things are going, of the circumstances you're in? No, that's not what it says. Because of perseverance and encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Listen, sometimes, sometimes as Christians, I think often, 
we can get very discouraged in knowing and working to live as we ought to. It can be very discouraging. Right? Life is hard, especially in a fallen world, and we the best thing to encourage us is the scriptures. Open the scriptures. Why? Because it's filled with people just like us who did exactly what we're being exhorted to do. People who walked through very, very difficult times. And the best thing to encourage us is the best example of all, Jesus Christ. Jesus gave up Himself. He persevered. And therefore, it isn't hopeless for us to follow Him. It isn't hopeless for us to walk as He walked. In fact, everything that has been written in the Old Testament was written for a purpose. For a purpose. It wasn't haphazardly thrown together. It wasn't that just, oh, gee, look, we found these books in the desert and they happen to have these words on it. And boy, it wasn't that nice that they preserved these words for us so that we can understand something about their history. No. It wasn't haphazardly put together like that. God was in charge of that. God was the one recounting what He wanted to be recounting. Why? Because it helps us persevere under the same kind of struggle. And that gives us hope. Not just the hope of Christ's quick return, although we all hope for that especially in a day like we live today, but hope in a more wide sense. It is to the God of hope that we turn to fulfill life's expectations. He is the God of hope. Listen, when we have our hope focused on God, we stop clinging to the small pleasures in this temporal life. We stop fighting for those Christian freedoms. We stop holding them so tightly, gladly forego and die to self because our hope is in God, not in that stuff. So there's personal hope, Paul says. But secondly, and maybe even more importantly, there's public unity. Public unity. Notice verses 5 to 7, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement. You see, it's from the Scriptures, it said before. We get perseverance and encouragement of the Scriptures, and yet here in verse 5 it says, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement. There's a, a clear equating of the Scriptures with the Word of God Himself. Don't let everybody ever tell you this is man's interpretation. This is what man says. No, no. Here's what it says. The Scriptures give us encouragement, God's the one who gives us encouragement. How? Through His Word. So, because of that, the God who gives this perseverance and encouragement, may He grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, that with one accord you may have with one voice glorify God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, wherever you wherefore accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. This is about public unity. This is about us as a body in a public sense, in a corporate sense, being unified. Remember, Jesus prayed that in John chapter 17. He prayed that. He prayed that we might be one just like He and the Father are one. This is Jesus' final prayer as He prays for His disciples and in that prays for us that He desires that the Father would make us unified. He prayed that we would be one. That's what He's praying for, a unity among us. Why? Because unity among the people of God glorifies God. We read it this morning in Psalm 133, how blessed it is, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. How good and how blessed, how pleasant. Unity's all over the place in the New Testament. It's all over the place. Acts chapter 2. Just walk through a few of these really quickly. Acts chapter 2, 
Oh, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 4, verse 32. The congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. They were one heart and soul. Not, and that, that was looking like this, not one of them claimed that anything was belonging to him. Anything that he had, it, it wasn't his. He wasn't claiming it was his. He was just a steward of it. All things were common to them. It was this not only a, a unity in Christ, but that unity in Christ had an outworking in who they were as believers in the very things that they did in coming together in such a difficult time of the persecution of the church as God is launching out into the world the great picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we get similar words about the Paul's prayer to the Corinthian believers, even though it was such a fractured place. Paul says, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree. He doesn't mean you're all all got the same thinking, but that you're saying the same thing. You're with your life and with your collective body that you're, there's no divisions among you, he says, that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. That you all have this biblical thinking because it produces a unity. Not a uniformity. Everybody's not exact. But there's a unity. Of course, Philippians is filled with this kind of thing. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Sounds familiar. That's just what Paul's writing to the Romans. Listen, this is how you behave, worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come to see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm. How? In one spirit. In one spirit, with one mind, what? Striving together for the faith of the gospel. There's this unity taking place within the church because of who you are. I think the greatest place that it says this is Ephesians chapter 5. Paul says, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. Offering an offering and a sacrifice to God is a fragrant aroma. Be like Christ. Do the very same thing Christ has done for you. Live this sacrificial life for others. That's how we glorify God. That's how we love one another. The world sees that character of God in us as we love one another, as we don't do what they do, as we don't respond like they respond. We are so different. We are opposite of what's happening today. We're not linking arms in that foolishness. No, beloved, let's not be confused. Let's not be arrogant. The world needs change. That's true. But it's a change that will only happen through the power of the gospel. It's only going to happen through the power of the gospel. We are called to love. We are called to not hate as the world hates. And if we're not loving for the rightful edification of one another, then you know what? We are expressing a kind of hatred. But it's a hatred in which God is not glorified for not expressing love for one another because John said in 1 John, how can you love God when you do not care for your brother? Who you do see. How can you love a God who you don't see? But here's my prayer. Here's the exhortation from the Apostle Paul. I pray that in us and in this body of Christ, as we gather together, as we are in interacting with one another, may the world see the gospel and its work in us. May the world see the gospel and its work in us as we love one another.
We do as we ought. We interact with one another and have those difficult discussions at times from things that we're doing. Somebody else recognizes. May we see that. And humbly be able to be together and show the world the gospel of Jesus Christ by not only what we say. We ought to be speaking the gospel. But they ought to be seeing the gospel. Well, won't you pray with me? Father, thank you for the patience of your people here this morning. Thank you for the sacrifice that they have given of their time, willingness to sit in a hot room. Thank you, the truth of your word is so penetrating and so helpful to us. Lord, may it be rich upon our hearts and minds as we live with one another and as we interact with a world that's so confused. Let us not buy into the philosophies around us, the loud voices that are proclaiming things. Let us just turn to the absolute truth of your word, understand it rightly, loving one another and spreading the gospel. We are not the Holy Spirit, just an instrument in your hand. Use us to your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.